Matthew chapter 18, verses uh, 15 through 35. <clears throat> if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two things to others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and he had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In his anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. So good morning, church family. It is so good to be worshiping with you this morning, whether in person here, which is so good to see your beautiful faces, or at home, um, worshiping from your living room or your bedroom or your back porch on this beautiful day. We're called family together. The local church and the relationships that God call us to are so important to God and to us. Guys, please don't forget that. Especially now when for the past year we've been taught to kind of avoid people. Make sure you don't neglect the saints and the call to the local church and the relationships God has blessed you with. You know, I know it's tempting to do so. I mean, it's often tempting to avoid relationships. It's really tempting to keep relationships shallow and to stay away from people. It is. It's tempting for many reasons. One is a fear of being known and judged, a lack of desire to want to invest in people when there's so much already going on in your life, past pain, past struggles, past experiences. Sometimes it's easier to avoid deep relationships. But my people, please hear God's heart in my plea this morning. Relationships are important, and we need not run away from conflict when it's needed. We need to do it well. 
for the glory of God and for our witness on earth. Relationships are important to God. The fact that you're joining us to worship with us in some degree or some manner or other shows that you know this to some degree. But God doesn't only care about our relationship with Jesus. God cares about our relationships with each other. And because God cares so much about relationships, today, in the scripture today, Jesus kind of gives us certain steps we're supposed to take when confronted or, or certain steps we're supposed to take when we see sin and issues and conflict in the church, amongst the church body. And the words of Jesus brought to us in today's scripture, not only God's kind of method of healthy conflict resolution, but it's actually more of a treasure chest full of these incredible nuggets that God wants us to mine as we see how to relate and how to understand the concept of living in community and forgiveness together. And a good way for us, and the way we're going to approach this first is we're going to actually kind of go a little bit out of order. We're not going to start in verse 15 and kind of go through. We're going to start in verse 20 and work our way backwards and then go forwards after that. And these are kind of some confusing past verses. Like, most of you guys are like, first three verses, 15 through 18, you're like, okay, I'm following you, good conflict resolution. And then the weird verses of like 17, 18, or 18, 19, and 20 show up. And you're like, I don't get why that fits in there. And then I understand the parable, right? Is, is, that, is that correct? Most of you guys, is that how you understood this passage as David was reading it? So the, here's, I believe, the last three verses that are confusing are key to understand how we're supposed to understand this passage of scripture. First off, it says, for where two or three gather in my name, there, I, there am I with them. Now, I feel like that verse is most commonly used when a church attempts to have a gathering of people, but only a few people show up. So the pastor gets up and says this first, right? Am I right? Let's be honest, right? It's like, it's like, oh, it's okay, guys. Jesus is still here, even though it's only two of you or three of you here, and we wanted a hundred, but it's still okay. Jesus is here, right? That's kind of the way this passage is used. And to be honest with you guys, I'm sure I've used this passage that way many, many times. And I'm not saying that it's wrong. I'm not saying that's incorrect. But that's not exactly what this passage is saying in this scripture. And this, in this, that verse is saying in this passage. What this verse is telling us is that when we have conflict, Jesus is still in our midst. And he cares about our relationships. Jesus is proclaiming his presence in the local church and the call upon the local church to abide in him. So when we gather in Jesus' name, God is there with us. God's relationship with us and our relationships with others are interconnected. That's what this passage is saying, is that he's in our midst, not because, you know, hey, it's still good that we got three people together, but he's in our midst because our relationship with God and each other are interconnected together. That we're called to do it in community. And verse 19 says, again, truly, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Man, when I was a kid and I first heard this verse, I was ecstatic. I went straight to my sister and made her agree with me that we needed a new video game system with all the games. I got so mad at her because I wasn't, like I was agreeing with all my heart, but still didn't receive anything. So it must have been her that wasn't agreeing. And she must have been trying to get like a Barbie dream house or something else. I was like, no, stop the dream house. We're supposed to go for the video game system. So I was very upset about this. But is this what the verse means? Is that what this verse is saying? If we, if we all agree together that a million dollars should appear right here, will a million dollars appear right here? Is that what Jesus is saying here? What Jesus is doing is establishing the authority and call of the local church in this scripture. You guys, remember the context that he's giving this. He's not giving this in context of, hey, I'm gonna answer all your prayers if you just ask. He's giving this in context of discipline in the church, the least in the church, and forgiving one another. A person who is walking in sin is treated like a Gentile. Well, then our prayer from the church should be in agreement for that person to be restored. May that be done. 
You see, what he's saying here is that if I tell you, if two are gathered together and on earth, if you ask for it, this will be done by the Father in heaven, is what Jesus is getting here is that your prayer should be that the restoration of the person that was been lost, that you're treating like a Gentile or a tax collector. What Jesus is getting here is that when we have harmony in our relationships and we see God's will together, our prayers line up with Jesus' prayer. So they'll be answered according to God's will. Verse 18 says, truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This verse reminds me of a statement that Jesus makes to Peter earlier in Matthew's gospel, chapter 16, verses 18 and 19 says this, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Have you guys ever heard this passage before, the loosed and binding, right? The passage is, what this passage is doing is affirming the authority and the call of the local church. It's the same language in Matthew 18 as in 16 to point people back to this idea. In Matthew 16, the authority of the church was established, and in Matthew 18, it's showing it again. And I know some people are put off by that statement, authority of the local church. They don't like that idea. And especially in Western Christians, the idea of anyone in authority kind of rubs us the wrong way, doesn't it? We've all heard of abuses of power done by the church. We've heard of terrible situations where authority takes power and power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So the idea of church and authority doesn't sit well with us. Ligon Duncan says this, we learn that the church is instrument, the earthly instrument for Christ's heavenly rule. Christ has appointed his church and especially the officers of his church to spiritually shepherd his people on earth. And so they are the instrument administrators of his rule in the hearts of his people. So what Lincoln Duncan is saying is literally that the church is called to be the instruments of Christ's heavenly rule on earth. So there is authority placed. And this is what this passage is saying to Peter on this rock, this, this idea, this truth, this message. And on him, authority is given. The local church is called to be administrators of Christ's rule on earth. So then what's up with the binding and the loosing? And I've been to churches before where the, they practice the idea of binding and loosing as a means of kind of spiritual warfare, the spiritual and material blessing. So if they bound something up, it meant that they bound up sin or the devil or illnesses or sickness, and then they would happen in, in heaven, right? So they bound up that thing, and, and then it's going to be bound in heaven. And then if they lose something like money or healing or blessing, if it's loosed on earth, it's loosed in heaven. So this idea that if you proclaim it here, then it's going to happen in reality. Does that make sense? This kind of idea. That's where I've heard often that interpretation of that scripture. And I'm not saying arguing against that interpretation, but I'm saying that doesn't what's mentioned, that's not what's fitting in this context of this passage in regards to resolving sin and conflict in the church. See, I believe verse 18 refers to the church's authority of admitting members into the church and excluding people from the church. It's referring to the church's authority over the fellowship of believers for the good of reconciliation and restoration. This binding and loosing is a metaphor drawn from the law court, for the court, the law system, the justice system. Binding refers to the idea of condemning. Loosing refers to the idea of acquitting. So if you guys get the picture, a prisoner is bound, he's not free. So he's still at least under suspicion of the court, if not under the condemnation of the court. But a prisoner who is loose is considered innocent and free. And so the language of binding and loosing here refers to the action of the church when they admit members into fellowship and if they sadly have to make, exclude members from fellowship. Does that make sense? And so verse 18, 19, 20 firmly establishes the authority of the church in resolving conflicts. 
So we really should listen if the church confronts any of us of a sin issue because that's where the authority needs to come from, from the church itself. As a church prays for truth and clarity, after seeking God's will, God is faithful to give it. And the Holy Spirit is present and involved and moving in the life of the church. And so I want to walk through this next passage carefully, and I don't want you guys to, to um, not think that I wasn't walking through the other parts carefully, but I want us to be really um, intentional in the words I'm using when I talk about how to resolve conflict. Because I truly believe there have been so many churches that have used this passage of scripture in an incorrect and kind of not heartfelt or not even true to the letter of what this passage is saying manner. I think there are people who've been hurt and abused by the church. I think there have been instances where the church has made numerous mistakes. And guys, can I just be honest, the church is full of messed up people, right? People who don't know all the answers. And so all we can do is humbly seek the spirit and humbly ask God, will you move and teach us? And so using the scriptures that we have, I want us to talk about this passage. And this passage isn't about ways to how to kick out people you don't like from the church. This passage is not about, well, that guy annoys me. Give me some reasons to get that guy out of the church. This passage is all about loving restoration, gentle rebuking for the hope of reconciliation. Can you hear that from me, people? It's not about power. It's not about, it's not about getting what you want. This whole passage is not about shunning difficult, sinful people from the congregation. It's about how to bring back those sheep that have gone astray. That is exactly why the passage right before this we didn't have it read, but right before, if you look in your Bibles, the passage right before this in the scriptures is about God going after that one lost sheep, leaving the 99 behind. This passage establishes the necessity of confrontation and discipline as a loving act to maintain our relationship with our Christian brothers and sisters in a broken world. So God cared about relationships so much that Jesus gives us an easy three-step process for conflict resolution. You guys ready for this? You guys can use this three-step process, hopefully not too often in our church. But if we're never doing this in a church, then we're also not loving each other well too. Do you guys hear me on that? There's a delicate balance there. If you're doing this too much, then there's an issue. If you're not doing it at all, then there's an issue. First step, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. Right? That doesn't mean like, because we all sin often. It doesn't mean every little thing, oh, David, mm-hmm, all the time. Just call him up all the time. Or Eric, every single day. That might defeat Eric, and Eric might cry. I don't want David to cry either. But it does mean to be loving and say, hey, there's an issue. There's a conflict. There's a sin. There's, there's, a, there's a mistrust. Something happened. But you know what I'm going to do is I'm not going to tell Billy and Susie and Mikey. I'm going to go talk to David. I'm going to go talk to Eric. I'm going to talk to the person that I'm dealing with one-on-one, right? And that person, if they, maybe, maybe they're just blinded to it. Maybe they didn't realize it happened. And so instead of causing the gossip mill to start going on, instead of the rumor mill to going on, what you do is you go talk to that one person directly. What a beautiful, simple concept that if we actually practice this, how beneficial it would be to the church and to the body. Instead of Greg doing something and all of a sudden I'm like, oh my gosh, Gina, Greg is terrible. Look what he did. And then Gina's like, I know. And then, and then Gina tells everybody else and I tell everybody else. And everybody's like, oh my gosh, Greg, you're the worst person in the world. If all I did is just walk up to Greg and Greg said, I didn't mean to. I didn't realize. Or you're right, let me repent in that. Do you guys understand that? This is such a simple truth but we often so easily and quickly mess up on this. It's a loving thing to go, loving thing to reveal. 
And in this case, the Bible says, I love this, that you've literally, uh, your investment has kind of returned. The Bible says that if you put it out just between the two of you, like there's a return on your investment on this, that it's worth it. Go and pursue them. But then what if the person doesn't believe you? What if the person disagrees with you? What if the person says, no, not me. I don't know what you're talking about. It's you, the one that messed up. Verse 16 says the second step. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by a testimony of two or three witnesses. There's a long Jewish tradition recorded in Deuteronomy 19 that states an accusation must be confirmed by evidence. There must be witnesses. And this is true in our court now. You know, if something happens, you can't just be like, oh, David said something happened. They want evidence to correlate what David was saying. And so if a person is reasonable and not to motion, they may be convinced by multiple people saying they've sinned. So if I went to somebody and said, you've wronged me, you've hurt me, but they're like, I don't think so. That's not how I interpret things. Well, if I bring a couple people in it, people like-minded who, are, who love the Lord, who are humbly walking, and they say, well, maybe I'll be like, oh, okay, they see it that way too. In your humility, maybe you can say, oh, they see it that way too. And so, okay, maybe you're right. But also maybe that when you go to other people to go walk for them, they might tell you, no, I think you're wrong, man. I don't think you should confront David because I think it's on you. <laughs> guys, here's the beautiful thing is when we walk in community, guys, I, I know this about myself. I can be self-delusional at times. <laughs> I can make big mistakes at times. I can misinterpret things at times. Somebody can, I realized this the other day. That, oh, I shared this in a sermon the other day, but I share text messages that people misinterpret all the time. Uh, people think I'm like a jerk and mean. I'm like, I'm not trying to be. I'm just answering the question. And I, I put periods. I'm sorry. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. If somebody then comes up to me and says, hey, t- t- you know, she's right, Lawrence. You, this is I'm, people I trust, people I live in community, people I value, who care about my restoration, then I'll stop and listen. Guys, we need to do this thing called life together because we are often blinded. We often have blinders on. We're often full and distracted. But we've been given community. Guys, and this is a loving thing to confront, to preserve relations by limiting the number of people involved and to come and bring forth a charge together. Then it says the third step. If that doesn't work, if there's a conflict that person is not repentant, if there's a conflict that it just wasn't, it's not working out, then it says to the next thing, Verse 17, it says, tell it to the church. Now, guys, that can be interpreted in many different ways. I've seen churches where they interpret it, even in big mega churches, if like thousands of people meant, oh, tell, write a letter to every single person in the church, tell them what happened. I don't necessarily think that's what it means here. Um, when this was written, I don't believe the mega church existed. So I think the church at that time was a little more intimate, a little more family, a little more knowing each other, if that makes sense. I think for us, is when, we, when this happened, when you, we've brought forth an accusation, an issue, a sin that you noticed in your brother's and sister's life, and you want them restored. You want them, hey, man, I, I don't think you should be doing this. And then you bring somebody else with you, and they're like, hey, we agree. We don't think you should be doing this. And that person still won't listen. Then what you call is, is that then you take it to the elders. You take it to your small group. So that as a body, they says, hey, we love you too much to let you just keep on walking in this way. We love you too much for you to make those decisions to throw your life away. We love you too much to do that to your children and do that to your family. Will you please, please seek repentance? 
And once again, I don't believe this means that you need to have a town hall meeting of the megaphone and say, everybody in the church, look what that person did. That's not the heart. That's not the intent. It's gentle rebuking. And if they're in the wrong, this is the huge thing here. This is, this is the big step, is that if they still won't listen, then we're called to deny fellowship to the church. They treat that person as a tax collector, as a Gentile, as a pagan, which is outside of the rules. But hear this, I want you to understand this, that for us in the Western American culture, that doesn't kind of make sense a little bit, does it? To deny, it's like, what do you mean to deny them membership? Like, most Americans don't care. Right? Because the reality is we don't have a high view of church membership and the high view of church fellowship. We're like, well, dude, I'll just go to the next church. Okay. Right? But you got to understand what this meant for the culture of the, Jew, the Christians at the time. What it means in other countries. Other than places like America. What this literally means is to deny the benefits of receiving communion together. Of being in worship. the being the body together. But it's not denial as a sense of punishment. It's a denial as a sense of, please, as, as you notice what you're missing, come back. So here are the steps. If a brother or sister sins against you, one, talk to them in private. Very practically, meet for coffee or lunch. Please don't do that over the text message, over an email. So easy to misinterpret. Like Once again, I will never do that over text message. It would be a bad decision for me. Face to face if you can. Two, take two or three people with you. Do this in a neutral place, maybe someone's house, maybe at the church, maybe at a coffee shop where you can just go and talk to somebody. Take people that you both value. Don't take somebody who's just going to be your yes man or somebody who's just always going to agree with you anyway. As you're walking the community, take people with you. Maybe a pastor, an elder, a small group leader. Three, bring them before the congregation. What that means is bring them forward to the elders, to your small group, if they persist in this manner. And let the church decide what it needs to be done. And if you get to this point with someone who's sinned against you, it might be tempted to think you're done. Right? You might be tempted to be like, oh, okay, so I've done all these three steps. That's what the Bible says, three steps. Right? And you might be like, okay, well, I keep on using David. I'm sorry, you're right there. But David sinned against me. He hurt me. He wronged me. But I've done the three steps. I'm finished. Me and David are fine. I did my part. But he says treat them like a pagan or a tax collector. But wait, wait, wait. How did Jesus treat pagans and tax collectors? He ate with them. He touched them. He healed them. His message was for them. He wanted to love them into fellowship. Our number one desire in this idea, this casting out, is, is reconciliation to the body. The prayer is always repentance and courage so that the one in the wrong can be restored. A gentle restoration. Once again, this is why right before this practical word comes the, the story of the shepherd going after the one lost sheep. And going after the one lost sheep, because when he has 99 others, he passionately pursues. So you, I don't wipe my hand with David. I treat David as the one lost sheep. And I pray for his restoration. And right after this teaching, Peter does a very Peter-like thing. I love this. Right after this whole thing, he does a Peter-like thing. He asks a question that's been on the, maybe on the minds of other disciples. But he says, Lord... How many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Which is a very Peter-like question, isn't it? He's like, like, all the other disciples are like, okay, he's say forgive and all this kind of stuff. But like, how many times? Peter, why don't you ask him? Right? So Peter's like, I'll do it. Because he thinks he has the answer too. He's like, seven. That sounds like a holy number. So he's like, Jesus, how many times? Seven, right? Points. 
I give you credit, seven is a good suggestion. It's a great number, symbolic number in scripture, fullness, completion, seven days of creation. But it's a great number. But Jesus says something crazy. He says, no, 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 not seven. Try 77 times. Or some translation says 70 times seven. So the first math problem, 70 times seven, of course, is what? Oh, I wonder who said it first, right? Yeah. <laughs> 77 times or 490 times, right? Well, which, which is it, right? You'll see in different translations, you'll see both. Which one really is it? What did Jesus really say? The Greek literally, when you read the original Greek, the, Latin, written, the Bible was written in the original Greek, it literally comes out to read something closer to 70 times seven. But the way that it was used is actually kind of unclear based on region, um, based on dialect. Scholars believe that the precise usage in the Greek is unclear. It could be 77. It could be 70 times 7. It could be interpreted either way. But the precise numbers are not really the point. The number 7 symbolizes wholeness or completeness. And so 7 times is not a bad guess on Peter's part. But what Jesus is saying is that forgive 70 times 7 or 77, an endless abundance of forgiveness A forgiveness that's absolute, complete, and beyond calculation. In other words, there's no limit. There's no like, oh, where's the limit of forgiveness? None. Now, this is a ridiculously hard teaching. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Being hurt physically, emotionally, spiritually affects us on so many different levels. It plays out in the deepest part of our brain where, where we have flight or fight or flight reflex. It, it, it tells us our conscious mind, tells us a story how things are supposed to be. We have a hard time when we've been hurt to forgive. But then he say forgive. Now, Kai, please hear me. I'm going to throw a caveat here. Forgive does not mean accept. Does that make sense? If you're in a situation where you've been hurt, it doesn't mean keep on getting hurt. It doesn't mean stay in a situation that is dangerous or hurtful to you. Please hear me very well on that. Forgive doesn't mean you stay in a relationship. Forgive means something does not mean that at all. It could, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. Do you hear me? I just want that caveat to be clearly thrown out there. But we're supposed to forgive completely, wholly. Writer Anne Lamott once said, forgiveness is giving up on the idea that we can change the past. Sometimes we can't even seem to find a way of giving up on that idea. It's a tough teaching for us to hear, and it was clearly tough for the disciples to hear as well. 70 times 7, Jesus, are you serious? The Romans have wronged me. King Herod has wronged me. Fellow fishermen have wronged me. We've all been wrong, man. No, I can't forgive people 70 times 7. And then Jesus tells this incredible parable. A story about a king who forgave his servant an enormous debt only to find that servant refused to have mercy on other people who owed him debt. And so here's another, some more math for you guys, for those of you guys who like doing math on the spot. The amount owed to the servant, it says in our translation, the NIV, it just uses the term 10,000 bags of gold, right? And then it says 100 coins of silver. They're just using large numbers, right? It's, it's like, those aren't exact numbers. For I mean, if you really want to, if you guys want to do this hard math, we could do 10,000 bags of gold. We don't know how many coins of, could fit in a bag. Multiply by how much they weigh. A troy ounce is 2,000. No, that's too much. But here's what it actually said in the original translation. It literally said, the amount owed to the servant by his fellow servant was 100 denarii, which is equivalent to 100 days of low wages. That's translated to 100 silver coins. Not a a small amount for a servant, but it pales in comparison to the extravagant amount a servant owed the king. He owed the king 10,000 talents. They translated 10,000 bags of gold. 
A talent was the largest unit of money back then, equivalent to 6,000 denarii. So 10,000 talents would equal 60 million denarii. Figuring a six-day work week, which is what they had, that means 10,000 talents would be the equivalent of 200,000 years of wages. That's a debt beyond calculation. That's the debt that no one could possibly pay in a lifetime or in many lifetimes. That's the debt that was owed to the king. You see this extreme language of debt, 200,000 years of wages. He was forgiven. In this case, we don't know why the servant was given such a large amount of debt cleared, but he was given it and there was no way he could pay off the debt. So the king, the servant falls on his knees and begs the king, have patience, I'll pay you back. But can you really ever pay back that kind of money when you don't have any of it? It's a preposterous promise, but the king knows it, but the king has compassion. Not only does he release the man from jail, but he releases from his debt. Not only does he say, all right, don't go to jail, just pay me back. No, he releases it from his whole debt. So the forgiven servant then encounters a fellow servant who owes him a hundred denarii, which is about a hundred days of work. He says, pay me what you owe. But the servant cries out, no, have patience on me, please have patience on me. But the guy says, no, forget you, go to jail. And his actions suggest that he's not comprehended or even understood the enormity of the debt that he was forgiven by the king. And he didn't realize there was a connection between being forgiven freely and forgiving others. And so when the king hears about the servant's actions, he's outraged. He said, how could you do this? How could you, how could you even comprehend not understanding what it means to be forgiven by me that you couldn't even forgive him of this? And Jesus says, so my heavenly father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive a brother or sister from your own heart. Heavy words. I mean, we know what Jesus asks of us as we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. There's a connection as our forgiveness leading to others' forgiveness. But still, it seems such a difficult, incredible, difficult word. A world without forgiveness is a world of relational wreckage. The opposite of wholeness and fullness. Jesus cares so much about forgiveness because a world that doesn't show forgiveness, a world that doesn't show grace is a broken, destroyed world. And what Jesus is, meant, Jesus is here doing is restoring creation the way it was meant to be. And one of the ways he restores creation is by showing a world of forgiveness and having his people show what a world of forgiveness looks like. So how do we forgive? Now it helps you remember that to forgive is not to deny pain or the wrongness that happened, not to excuse an injustice or a hurt, nor is it to tolerate it. But remember what Jesus has already said about confronting the one who has wronged you. You need to confront, we need to come face to face with our own sinfulness and brokenness and realize that we are all alike in utter dependence of God's grace. The crazy number, the outrageous number that Jesus uses in this parable is done on purpose. It's, it's this new math that Jesus teaches. It's not about the numbers. It's, it's not quantifiable commodity. It's a diff qualitative different way of living life being drawn from the very nature of God, whose nature is to be gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, whose ultimate goal is reconciliation and restoration. Many of you guys have probably know the story of a late Christian Dutch underground member named Corey Ten Boom. You guys ever heard of who, who that is? She told a story of traveling in Germany after the war, bringing a message of forgiveness. 
the war cost her family deep. Though they'd hidden and saved countless refugees, Jew and Christian alike, they could not save some of their own. Corey had to watch her beloved sister Betsy die in Ravensbrück concentration camp. And this is what she writes. It was in the church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. He came back with a rush. The huge room with the harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message for a line. How good it is to know that as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than taking that hand. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I'd like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again, the hand came out, will you forgive me? And I stood there, and I could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out. But to me, it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. I knew forgiveness not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Help, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder and raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. And for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Forgiveness is not an emotion, and even the most faithful and courageous among us can find it a burden. And though Koytebum describes it as an act of the will, it was still clearly something that could not be conjured up by will alone. Forgiveness was something that she needed to receive as a gift from God. She couldn't come up with it on her own. She had to ask for it. Koytebum suggests that those who were unable to forgive the war crimes against them were unable to heal from their injuries. I heard that phenomenon described in many ways, but this may be the best. To forgive is to set a prisoner free and to discover that the prisoner was you. My people, we're not capable of this kind of forgiveness. 
It's only God who is able. And living a life full of forgiveness might be one of the hardest, if not the hardest parts of following Christ. And maybe the greatest news in this tough parable is that we don't have to do forgiveness alone. It's only, only by the grace and love of Jesus that we're able to show forgiveness to others. Forgiveness is not easy, it's not automatic, but with God, it is possible. And it starts with asking God to help us to forgive. If we can't even do that, it starts by asking God to help us to want to forgive. And if we can't even do that, it is, starts with asking God for help to set this prisoner free. And he will. My people, we've never ever once as Christians are say that there will be no conflict, that our lives will be purpose, perfect and utopian and we'll always get along. We will always have conflict in this sinful, broken world. But the way we ultimately show the world the beauty, the worth of Christ is that we show each other forgiveness. We'll always disagree over politics, over seating, over styles, or over anything there is. People just disagree because we're sinful. People fight because we're sinful. We have conflict. But can we see the forgiveness that is ours? Walk in humility, forgive each other, and show the world the power of a forgiving God that's called us to forgive each other. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the forgiveness that is ours from this immeasurable, unpayable debt. God, it's the number that you used in this parable was so big, and we thank you that doesn't even pale in comparison to what we've been forgiven of. So God, will you teach us how to forgive others? Will you show us how to walk in conflict resolution because we love and we seek the restoration and reconciliation of our brothers and sisters? God, we want to forgive. We want healed relationships because in the healed relationships, in the fixed relationships, in grace being given and shown, we see the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. God, we love you and we thank you. As we partake in this communion table, May we do it knowing that we forgive our brothers and sisters. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. At this time of our worship service, we are going to join with our Christian sisters and brothers throughout the world in what is called the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion or Communion. And Pastor Lawrence, earlier in the service, led us into a time of just processing and, and confessing and, and thinking about what it means to accept God's forgiveness. And the whole sermon was basically, we've been forgiven, we can forgive others. So at this time, I just want you to take a moment in your seat, and if there's just something you need to confess to God, or even ask for forgiveness in your heart towards something, toward others, uh, just take a moment to do that in your seat and at home. Thank you, God, for your forgiveness. We accept your forgiveness. And may we be people of forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. So at this time, normally when we're before the protocols of the COVID, 
we would have everyone come up and we would actually dip. You'd get your own wafer and you'd dip it in the juice and take it. And it would be a time to kind of, like you're physically walking forward. And it's, it's, it's been, it was a good practice for us at Waypoint. We were doing it twice a month. Since COVID, it's, the Lord's Supper has been a lot harder. Right now, each of you who are in person have these little cups with these styrofoam wafer things. They make it safe, so you can go ahead and open the top part so that you can have your wafer ready. For those of you at home, you can have your bread and your juice ready. And we, we've confessed, and we, we come to the Lord's table. And we're in a season of Lent, as you can see with the uh, purple cloth on the cross. And this is a time where we, as the church, just try to reflect there's a Lent uh, prayer guide online. If you want to find that, you can email the church office and we can get you to that, or you can find it on Realm or on our website. It's just a prayer guide each week. But as we come to the table, this is a table for those who are followers of Jesus, and we come often to remember what Jesus did on the cross, and we remember the new covenant that Jesus made with us, and we remember that we are forgiven people, born-again people, new creations, people with a hope and a future, people of the kingdom of God. In 1 Corinthians, Paul reminds, us, reminds the church in Corinth, and he reminds us, and he says, quoting Jesus in Matthew and Mark, he says, for I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So at this time, will you take the bread and remember the body of Christ broken for you? In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's partake and remember, this is the blood of Christ shed for you. Father, we could never pay back. We can, there's nothing we could do other than accept the forgiveness. The debt was too great. Our hearts were too hard. We just accept your grace, accept your forgiveness and the mercy and, that you showed us on the cross. And we spring forth into new life and we look forward to Easter when we remember that. And Pentecost, as you pour out your spirit on us, God, may we be people who live in the light of your mercy and of your forgiveness. God, we thank you for this time to come together and take this meal. We thank you for this means of grace that we get to do often as your body. May we remember that we are forgiven people. And may we walk in that forgiveness as we trust you with each day. In Jesus' name we pray.